One of the best things a politically appointed agency head can do, well, too often they don't do. What is that? Well, for the answer, we turn to our professor of good government and longtime labor management observer, Bob Tobias. Bob, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. And you have studied this because this is the time of the political cycle in the nation when some of those first-term folks start to think about bailing. Yes, they do. Most political appointees, the average length is a little over two years, but most of these Biden appointees have stayed on, and it looks like they're going to stay on for the full first term. And it's at this time when they start thinking about, how do I want to be remembered? And most focus on the public policy they created, because it has the greatest potential coinage for a post-government resume. They know, and we know, that public policy creation is how historians who write about governance and potential future employers evaluate their time in office. Well, what are some of those public policy triumphs? It's not like we've had a new civil rights bill of 1965. Well, but the Biden administration did initiate and Congress passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, the $1 trillion infrastructure law, the first gun safety legislation in 30 years, the CHIPS Act that gave $53 billion in federal spending to manufacture semiconductor chips in the U.S., and the nearly $2 trillion Inflammation Reduction Act. It's a lot of trillions. When you That's a lot of up. trillions, Tom. But more importantly, it's hundreds and thousands of pages of regulations to implement this legislation. It's lawsuits challenging the legislation. And obviously, Congress is going to try to roll back some of those things that were passed during Biden's time of office. So these current crop of political appointees are going to say, we were present when it happened. We were in the room where it happened. We know what the rationale is. We know who voted yes. We know who voted no. We can guide you, so hire us. That's the coin of the realm for the big law firms, the big consulting firms, and the big think tanks. And universities who want to hire stars from an administration to teach their students. And what do they talk about? Public policy creation. Yeah, that can get you into football coach salary territory. Yes, it can. (laughs) But very few make it into football coach territory these years. So these current crop are going to be like all, and they're going to point out what they participated in. But I hope, I really do hope, Tom, that some also want to be remembered for establishing processes and procedures to make the government run more effectively and more efficiently. And one important but underutilized approach to run the government more efficiently and effectively is through the creation of collaborative labor management relationships. You know, this kind of success has no resume value, zero resume value, because few non-federal employees or potential private sector employers care one whit about collaborative labor management relationships in the federal sector. But I would say that such a legacy is really commitment to political appointees who come to the federal government and say, I want to make a difference. But in their mind, when they come, it's public policy creation. And I suggest a focus on public policy implementation. 
We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a former union president and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. And let's talk about that collaboration. But I think it's fair to say that even the political appointees that come in and they do this resume burnishing, we should acknowledge they had some sense of serving the public and some sense of public service before coming in. No question. They did. And many of them have done a great job. I want more, Tom. I'd like them to do more than just that. All right. So tell us more about collaborative labor management and the importance of that. I mean, we're seeing some negotiations going on right now in several agencies. There are. So there are many of these current collaborative labor management relationships that were started by political appointees in President Clinton and President Obama years that have continued to make the government work better. Now, during the President George W. Bush and President Trump years, they were very much under the radar because creating and maintaining these kinds of relationships were banned. But many survived through the entire period of time because political appointee leaders, whether they were Republican or whether they were Democrat, recognized that the ability to design and implement needed change for better results occurs when federal employees through their unions participate in the design and the implementation of the needed change. Give us some examples. Well, I don't know whether I want to out these agency, these relationships who have been under the radar for so long, but there are several around that had employee-initiated change. And where the employer wanted to initiate change, these collaborative relationships work together to design and implement it faster without coercive bargaining. And so the benefit to the public occurred faster than in these relationships where they are at each other's throat all the time. Yes, they can't be the agencies since you want to keep them under the hood there. But, I mean, you look at Homeland Security, you look at Social Security, you look at uh, some of the big agencies like that. They've had rough times getting their basic bargaining agreement into place, hundreds of clauses, and they could be in court and with the FLRA tied up for, you know, the six or seven or eight or 12 really key clauses in these contracts. So this must be happening kind of under the radar then. It is. I've been following this for many, many years, and nobody ever puts out now, even in the Biden years, a press release saying, We just worked collaboratively and implemented and saved X dollars because that just brings the wrath of so many people and so many charges. They just keep it under the radar and they just keep doing business together. Do you think the fact that federal employee unions are proscribed by statute from bargaining over pay and benefits maybe focuses the discussions more on making things work better because they don't have the abstraction of how much you're going to pay me. What can I get out of you? Well, that's right. Pay is off the books. And so if I'm a union leader, and I was a union leader, the idea of including the people I represented in solving the problems that they were facing in the workplace was a huge incentive to join and participate in the union. And they had so much satisfaction from making the workplace better, from removing the bottlenecks that always occur in any large institution. So when that happens, everybody benefits, Tom. 
It strikes me that knowledge is good for the unions to promulgate among employees because in the federal sector, one of the challenges for the unions, the big ones, is getting everybody or as many people as possible to join and pay dues, even though those that don't join and don't pay dues often benefit from the bargaining agreement that's in place anyway. That's a fact, Tom. And if you are a bargaining unit employee and you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really terrific. I don't need a union. As a union leader, I can say, Tom, you might not need a union, but if you really want to participate in what's going on in the workplace, come join, and I'll put you on one of these teams to solve the problem that you've been complaining about now for two years. Sign up and play. Yeah, everybody thinks the five-day work week came about by natural selection or natural order of things, but maybe, maybe not. Or they think that all of this opportunity to work at home came about by magic or just because of COVID. But the unions have been working on alternative work schedules for years and years and years. So the groundwork was laid for what actually occurred. Bob Tobias is former federal union president and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. Thanks so much for joining us, as always. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you on your journey. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.